But you can turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. We got a lot to go through tonight, a lot of topics. There certainly is an overarching application, overarching headings that we can have here. But a lot of different things are going to come up in Deuteronomy 22 that are difficult for us to understand. I mean, some things are clear. I mean, don't cross-dress is one of them. Also as well, I don't really get the thing with the birds in the nest and the not mixing seed, but we'll certainly go through that. Then he also talks about laws concerning sexual morality. So <laughs> adultery, fornication, rape, and incest. So tonight's going to be fun for us all as we go through Deuteronomy 22. Remember, it is God's word. And so uh, let's begin reading at verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray uh, and hide yourself, uh, hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. If your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so you shall do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down along the road, and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help lift them up again. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, he shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof. You may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct, and brings a bad name on her, and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my father to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. Yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. They shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. They shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, and he cannot divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. A young man who is a virgin, a young woman, sorry, who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out from the city, 
and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver. She shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's nakedness. Amen. Well, there are a lot of puzzling laws in the book of Deuteronomy that really are just difficult to grasp. I hope this further highlights why some of these positive laws are not meant to be a one-for-one one from Deuteronomy to our modern context. We take the general equity, we glean the principles behind these laws, and then we draw out some modern application. And certainly Deuteronomy 22 has some puzzling passages that I don't know that I fully understand, but God certainly gave it for us in his word and gave it for the people of Israel, for them as, as a nation, as a theocratic nation under God. And remember, that's part of the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy, how the old covenant people, how Israel was to live in the land, how they were to honor their God uh, with respect to life in the land that God was giving unto them. And Deuteronomy really is a covenant structured in that way. And certainly we're in the main section now, the stipulations, what the people must do in order to earn salvation, or not earn salvation, sorry, what the people must do in order to retain life in that land. It was a conditional covenant. If they kept God's law, then they would have a good prolonged life temporally in a temporal land that God has given unto them. And tonight we're kind of seeing some overlap between the sixth and seventh commandment. Certainly the eighth commandment is there as well. Perhaps we're transitioning from the sixth commandment, which you should all know is thou shalt not murder. And the seventh commandment, which you all should know is thou shalt not commit adultery. And so there's overlapping of these commandments with respect to one's quality of life in the land. I think the problem, there's many problems actually, because there are many different laws here, uh, but one overarching problem or two, I guess we could highlight is how people are inconsiderate and selfish. And this manifests itself in our lack of concern for possessions, our carelessness with our own possessions and our carelessness with other people's possessions, our concern for neighbor. Uh, we ought to have a concern for our neighbor without looking the other way, but also manifest in our lack of concern for the marriage bed. Sexual intimacy is a good thing in one context only, the marriage between a man and a woman, which God had given at the first marriage. Everything else is a violation. Everything else violates the seventh commandment, but it ought to be used properly in that good place with respect to one's marriage. There are a lot of examples here of that violation. You see how that seventh commandment is then fleshed out in adultery, fornication, rape, and incest. So in Deuteronomy 22, we see Moses gives miscellaneous, that's just a good overarching word to describe what's going on here, various laws, various commands that he gives, miscellaneous laws for life and for the marriage bed. Miscellaneous laws for life and for the marriage bed. And so we'll look at this under two headings this evening. We'll see laws for life in the daily round, verses 1 through 12. 
laws for life in the daily round, verses 1 through 12. And then secondly, we'll see laws to preserve the marriage bed, verses 13 through 30. So uh, laws for life in the daily round, and then laws to preserve the marriage bed. So let's first look at laws for life in the daily round, verses 1 through 12. And notice verses 1 through 4, consider your neighbor's possessions. And notice we see verse 1, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. There's a repeated word there in these four verses. Do not hide yourself. Do not hide yourself. Do not hide yourself. Do not look the other way when you see something that uh, something of your neighbor's that is his. Do not look the other way if your neighbor's in a difficult situation. Don't just go minding your own business, continuing on in life. A good example, or I guess a bad example, I'm always don't know how to phrase that because it's a good example in a bad way, in the sense that the Pharisees in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable or the Pharisee and the Levite, what they do? There's a man lying in the road. They stepped on the other side of the road. They turned the other way. They looked the other way. They do not have concern for their neighbor. And so really loving your neighbor even applies here to considering the possessions of your neighbor, of the one who, of, of what is his, of what is not yours and what is his. So you shall not see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray. Now there is a similar law in Exodus 23, 4. And even there it says, when you see your enemy's ox go and you shall not and going astray, you shall not hide your face from it. Just because he is your enemy doesn't mean you get to treat him like garbage. You still need to care for his possessions. Because typically our natural tendency is A, to turn away. A, to just be like, I have something I got to do. I got to mind my own business. I'm not worrying about what everybody else is doing. But I, I'm just kind of turning the other cheek. Just turning, the, not turning the other cheek, but turning away from that very thing. The other tendency as well is when we have conflict, is all the uh, sense of decency goes out the window. It happens with respect to marriage. When marriages fall apart, it happens with respect to friends falling apart. If that happens, we're still supposed to be cordial and kind and treat each other with dignity and respect. And we'll certainly see that with the, the divorce uh, law in Deuteronomy 24. But really, we ought to have consideration and care for our neighbor's possessions. And one thing one commentator highlights here is especially verses one through four, it's mainly just a general courtesy. Certainly it is a law, but there is no punishment if it is not followed. It is a positive aspect on how one can fulfill the sixth commandment and really the eighth commandment as well, because there's a lot of overlap with all of those commandments. Notice that the commandments are, this, are not just thou shall not negative. There's also something you can do as well. It's not just don't steal, but also make sure you care for your neighbor's possessions. It's also not just don't murder. It's also make sure you care for yourself, care for the life of yourself to make sure your family's provided for, but also care for your neighbor's possessions. So you shall not hide it. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. Uh, so make sure you bring it back to him. But verse two, if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, two different scenarios, one's for the brother's far away, or there's someone you don't know, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to them. So you care for your neighbor's possession, you care for your neighbor's, uh, you sh uh, care for your neighbor's things. Verse three, you shall do the same with his donkey 
and so you shall do with his garment. With anything lost of your brothers, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. And there's that word or that uh, phrase, you, shall, you must not hide yourself from these things. So clearly, people are allowed to have possessions. Clearly, this is a lesson in property rights, regardless of what the elites of the world might say, how we're going to own nothing and be happy. Eighth commandment implies that we can have our own things that God gives to us. And we ought to care for them and treat them well because God has given them to us. We also ought to recognize what is not ours. We ought to recognize what God has not given to us and in turn protect the rights of, the, of, the, of those who lose various things, especially in this case with an ox, sheep, donkey, garment, or anything that your brother loses. And then verse four, you shall not turn away from helping your brother in a time of need. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help it, help lift them up again. So if you see someone along the road who's fallen over and they can't get up, don't just walk by, help them stand up. And the implication here or the, what's going on here is perhaps the ox has fallen, perhaps trampled over or fallen over, stumbled over, and the guy who owns it can't lift an ox. I've never lifted an ox before, but I surmise they're quite heavy. And so it's probably helpful to have someone to come and, you know, two hands are better than one or two bodies and backs are better than one. And so if your brother is in need, do not hide your face from him. That's the principle. That's the situation. And a lot of these case laws too, they're all encompassing. It's just highlighting a, a scenario that could arise that could be helpful in other scenarios. So care for your brother or your brother's things. If your brother is in need, make sure you don't turn the other way. Just pretend you didn't see him and just continue walking along the road. Stop and help. Stop and take care of his possession. Uh, do not turn your face away. But then notice in verse five, don't cross dress. I feel like this is so self-explanatory with respect to what the Bible says and even just natural law based that God's law written on our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And people twist things. People change things. People want something that God has not ordained. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord. Men should not be women, and women should not be men. This is such a triggering thing in our modern context, and I'm probably going to go to jail for saying stuff like this. Not that I think anybody's going to go and search Mike Kirkpatrick, Deuteronomy 22, what did he say about transgenderism? He's not, I don't think anybody's going to do that. Nobody, no one's going to listen to that. But the point is, this is something that is very much prevalent in our modern society. You know what's kind of comforting in a very depressing way about verse 22? There's nothing new under the sun. Say what has been is what has our what has been uh, what is has already been and what is to be has already been, and what the implication is, especially with the language there, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. That word was used specifically with the Canaanites and their various uh, religious practices, and the implication, but with the reference there to the word abomination, that the Canaanites were practicing this, and perhaps what they were doing, as Wright says was uh, uh, A, engaging perhaps in some sort of homosexual rite or some sort of fornication in this way, but also perhaps it was some sort of pagan type of worship. 
serious immorality, and serious idolatry. There is nothing new under the sun. I know some of the more elderly folk in, the, in our church, and I, I know I've said old before, and my wife said I probably should say elderly because it sounds more, you know, encouraging that way. When I say old, you know I mean it in a nice, endearing way. I want you to know that. But I've, you know, I've listened, and I understand that in, in a times past, when you were younger, when, you know, you were growing up, it just wasn't, you know, as out there as it is today. And that certainly is true. But we must remember there's nothing new under the sun. Again, we must remember that it was going on in Canaan. It was going on in the Roman Empire. I mean, why does, why does Paul say in Romans 1, talks about that very thing? Why does Paul have to deal with cross-dressing in 1 Corinthians 11? Do you know the section with head coverings? It's, not, it's talking about cross-dressing. He's arguing against that very thing. Because what would happen there is, you know, men would put up their, their hoods and they would actually look like women from afar off. The point of 1 Corinthians 11 is men be men and women be women. That's what it is. It is saying. It's not saying you have to wear a head covering. The head covering, you know, identified and showed that a woman was a woman in that context. Men keep it up. The point is, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, uh, with respect to verse 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, it doesn't mean that ladies can't wear pants especially when there are pants that are designed for ladies. What it means is that a woman should look like a woman. I, I, I'm shocking. I know a shocking application. We have to make it today. And men should look like men. Men should resemble what a man looks like. Men were built a little bit differently. Women were made a little bit differently. And dare I say, it's not so you know, far-fetched to say that only men or so only women can have babies. What's going on today? Oh, men can have babies. Are you kidding me? What kind of upside down world are we living in at this time? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So brethren, don't cross dress. If you're a man, please act like a man. Please dress like a man. Please resemble a man. I should be able to tell that you're a man from far away. You know, I should just be able to just, you know, one look there. You're a man. Okay. Same with ladies, you know, just. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. Certainly Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 deal with homosexuality more explicitly there, but certainly that is in view in verse 5. But what's interesting, too, is a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. The word for man there is not the typical word for man. It's the word for warrior. Again, there's just some things that men are better at than women, and that's not, you know, misogynistic to say. Just like it's not wrong to say that there are some things, you know, women are just better at men than, uh, at some things than men are. That's okay. We can embrace that and, you know, recognize the, you know, that man or man and women are made in the image of God. So don't cross-dress. Men be men. Women be women. Thankfully, I think you're all on board with that in this church. So that's good. So it is abomination to the Lord your God. And then verses 6 through 12, I kind of lumped all these in as laws concerning home life. Again, these were the ones I'm like, I, I, I have no idea what's going on, but we'll try and see if we can glean what's happening or understand what's happening. Verse 6, the bird's nest. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the, with the mother's mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. 
boy, this is going to trigger all those people who are part of PETA. They're all going to be just, you know, concerned, you know, with the fact that the little ones are still taken away because you shouldn't harm any animal. You know, God gave us animals to eat, by the way. We're allowed to enjoy that and appreciate that. Not saying you have to like every animal that you eat, but God has given us certain animals. But this is a very triggering section of scripture, I'm sure, for a lot of people. Uh, But the point, perhaps what is going on here (laughs) with the bird's nest is perhaps it is for economic reasons. The likelihood is that they're preserving food for the future. If you take the mother and the young, then she's not gonna make any more young to eat. (laughs) I mean, it's part of preservation of life. And the implication here is that, or the the, the principle to glean from this is that we should not destroy long-term provision for short-term gain. And, the, uh, and the, the, the language of mother and young taken away, uh, one of the commentators highlights, was in various other texts as a sign of destruction. If you take both of them, then there's no more food to eat. There's nothing else to enjoy. So it might not seem that humanitarian for the mother who has her three young taken away or three eggs taken away. But God has given certain good things to enjoy and eat. And we ought not to be, dare I say, greedy with that or gluttonous with that. And we ought to recognize that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land. Proverbs 12, 10, a righteous man regards the life of his animal. That doesn't mean you can't kill and eat something. It just means you have to be humane when you do it and kind when you do it. And uh, uh, even too, in the, with, with very, various hunting uh, courses that one takes, they tell you where to shoot the animal to make sure it's not you know, dies in a cruel sort of way. That's, that's absolutely legitimate to consider. And so, yeah, I think there's perhaps some uh, 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 parallel with chapter 20, verse 19, with the trees, you know, with respect to sieging and taking a city, what trees you should use, the ones that have no more food that you may destroy and cut down. So that's probably what's going on here, probably for economic reasons. Uh, Don't take the mother so you guys still have some food. And then verse eight, the parapet for protection. Roofs in Israel, or roughs as our Americans like to say, were flat for sleeping, for relaxing, perhaps for entertaining. So what you need to do to protect people is to build a parapet or some sort of retaining wall to make sure they don't fall. That's just good horse sense, right? To make sure nobody falls, you're building a railing or building a deck, put a railing around such a thing. You need some sort of wall. He ought not to be negligent with your house. There's a parallel in Exodus 21, verse 28, with the oxen. If there's an oxen that is that the, the man knows is aggressive and could gore someone and still lets it about and lets it go free, the man is negligent with that. The man, uh, the man is negligent and could be charged with manslaughter because they were not considerate uh, uh, of their neighbor in this way. And so the implication is we ought not to be negligent, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your house if anyone falls from it. Remember, they don't want any innocent blood to be shed in the land. We certainly saw that in uh, Deuteronomy 21 and Deuteronomy 19 as well. So innocent blood should not be shed even in this way. And it be brought on your household if anyone falls from it. So make sure you know child block, child proof. I don't know. I mean, who knows? I'm, I, that's just an implication or application. But yeah, we ought to 
you know, be careful and wise uh, with how we protect our friends and neighbors when they come over. So if you have a flat roof, make sure there's a, a railing there. And then verses 9 through 11. This is the one, again, I don't know fully what's happening. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seeds, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. Probably what's going on here, all of these things indicate uh, our daily reminders of Israel's distinctiveness. Not saying you can't plant some strawberries with some raspberries, but the point is that Israel was to be distinct. Israel was to be different. They weren't meant to mingle, mingle things together. Perhaps Egypt did that in verse 9, something like that. They're supposed to be different from the nations around them. The ox was a clean animal. The donkey was an unclean animal, so you're not supposed to mix them together. Uh, garments of different sorts, wool and linen mixed together. Perhaps there is some sort of sexual connotation. Uh, sorry, wrong one. Uh, that's verse 12. No, there is some sort of sexual connotation with verse 11. Perhaps it was possible garments of a harlot. Uh, so again, Israel was supposed to be distinct, not like the other nations. And when they're going out, sowing their seeds and planting their seeds and plowing their field, it was just a daily reminder of what they were. Daily reminder that they've been separated by God and as a special chosen race. So then in verse 12, just remember the law. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing uh, with which you cover yourself. Uh, uh, protection of the people with the law so they don't engage in these things. They must remember. They must know it in their minds, know it in their hearts, wear it before their eyes that they might be able uh, to not sin against the Lord God Most High and sin against their neighbor. Uh, the tassels are explained in Numbers 15, and we see it also in Deuteronomy 6 as well. And one commentator perhaps highlighted perhaps there is some sort of sexual application certainly it is remembering god's law but on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself that is be modest don't be naked and uh make sure you have the law even in your garment to make sure that you remember not to be naked and to engage in sexual morality. so perhaps there could be that there as well and that would be a good transition uh to verse 13 but we'll get to there in just a second now there's a lot of application because there's a lot of different laws that are there but perhaps the overarching one is love your neighbor. I mean, and I perhaps one way to nuance that a bit more is the importance of general consideration for our fellow man, even in the little things of life. Considerate of their possessions, considerate of the birds, considerate of the one who comes over, considerate even as well as you remember the law and make sure you don't mingle things together. We ought to consider others better than ourselves in the daily round. It's not just on ch at church. It's not just on Sunday, but every day it's a lesson in self-denial. It's a lesson how prideful we are, even in the little things of life, even in these little moments, even in these, the lack of, uh, you know, general consideration in our society as well. I know I struggle with it. I know that I get grumpy and irritated with little things. I know that when I'm walking around Costco, I get grumpy and irritated. 
but it's just everybody else seemed grumpy and irritated all the time. Like everybody's just wanted to get through and just, you know, bash through everybody and nobody's considering the next person. Everybody, you know, you know, I, I'm not trying to, you know, I, I feel like it's been, you know, exacerbated more with COVID. Everyone just oh, got to get in and got to get out and just no consideration for people around us. And brethren, we ought to be considerate because I, Matthew 7, 12, which is the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not with what they actually do to you. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Even if they treat you like garbage, even if they treat you in a mean way, even if they are, you know, crashing into you at Costco, treat them and love your neighbor as you would yourself, which is very convicting, very piercing, and reminds us about how, we, how much we need our Lord Jesus Christ to save us from all of our sins, even from the little situations when we're not very considerate. But all this really just reminds us of how much we ought to honor God in the daily round. Now, it might not be done by planting seeds and plowing fields, but maybe by being considerate with your neighbor's things when you borrow them. Not trash them, not destroy them, be considerate of those very things. Perhaps it might not be by, you know, building a parapet, but maybe again, building a railing on your deck to make sure children don't fall off. Maybe it is by dressing modestly, verse 12, if that there is an application there, dressing rightly, verse 5. By reading Bible stories to your children, verse 12, and even by reading your Bible, verse 12. That's how we honor God in the daily round. It's not always Sunday, but it is every day we ought to seek to honor God, especially as the new covenant people redeemed and saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is some application, I think, for us there. Just general consideration for our fellow man, which is hard. So that's laws for life in the daily round, let's then look secondly at laws to preserve the marriage bed in verses 13 to 30. The unsavoriness continues. Laws concerning accusations of adultery, verses 13 through 22. So verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her, and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. So the situation is a man and a woman have been married. He goes into her on the marriage night. Uh, and in this case, we see that word, he detests her. And so we're going to see distinguishing between the case of him just bringing a false accusation and the situation where there, if there is one who really is not a virgin. But in any case, verse 13 he seems to be one who's not happy with his wife. He probably maybe had cold feet on the wedding day, still went through with it. And then that night, it's like, oh boy, I don't know if I want to continue with this. Too late. And so he tries to conjure up something for her or against her and brings charges with shameful conduct that she was unclean, that she was not a virgin. What's interesting is both in Israel and even the nations. I know the nations around them still engaged in sexual morality. I mean, verse five. But the, what was interesting is that most assumed that the woman given in marriage would be a virgin. Even too, when you think back even to Abraham and Abimelech in the book of Genesis, even Abraham and, and, and uh, in Egypt and Pharaoh, that you know, he lied about his wife. And, and then even Abimelech's like, wait, I, I, I can't do that. There's fear of God in the sense they recognize that there is morality, that a man and a wife should be together that way and you should not violate 
that marriage bed. And so in this case, yeah, especially in Israel, you know, virginity was an important thing. And so he comes in, he see, or he, you know, in this case, he's, uh, he doesn't love her, charges her with shameful contact, and then brings a bad name on her and her family. And what that would do in this context is that she would then probably never get married again. She would just be a widow the rest of her life and live a life of loneliness and destitution. And so it wasn't just, oh, she's going to go get a job and live a fulfilling life. No, that's so different from what you know, people think in our modern context versus what we see here. She didn't have that option. She would, would have been destitute. And so all of this, all these laws are, again, to punish the guilty and protect the innocent, which we see even in this, even in this unsavory, un, these unsavory situations. And so what shall happen? Here's the procedure. Then the father, verse 15, and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. There's going to be proper judicial process. They're going to go to the cities at the gate. They're going to make sure that this, uh, you know, to prove that their daughter was actually a virgin. Now, if I may just make a mo- another comment concerning our modern situation, it's a bit of an aside and an implication. Sometimes you hear the modern argument of those who live together but don't get married. What do they say? They like to say marriage is just a piece of paper. Oh, look at the Old Testament. Look what happens. Look, they were just given in marriage. There was no you know, specific certi- certification that was there. Well, anybody who says that has never read their Bible. I mean, A, you need a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, which implies that there must be some sort of legally binding, you know, document that is signed. And then B, the, the, the transaction that happens between the father and the bridegroom. Now, the, the, the woman, in a lot of ways, is treated like property. I know, again, feminists are going to freak out with that. But the, 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 the bride price was to protect her value was to make sure that she was protected. All of this was to make sure that they were protected. But notice, you cannot say, oh, the Old Testament, they just, you know, given in marriage, that sort of thing. They didn't sign. They're going before the gates. They're engaging in transaction. They're engaging in, you know, certificate, uh, certification to verify that the marriage did come about and that there are witnesses. So that argument of just a piece of paper is absolute hogwash and may i say if it is just a piece of paper then just get married like just do it if it's just a piece of paper just get married come on you know, put your money where your mouth is just do it and get married so that's my little rant on the on the side there but notice verse 16 the process continues and the young woman's father shall say to the elders i gave my daughter to this man as a wife and he detests her and now he has charged her again, so he doesn't like her. and doesn't want to be married to her anymore. Sorry, pal. Verse 17. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. Now perhaps what that token was was a garment of blood to signify that she was a virgin on the wedding night. They shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city as proof. Then verse 18, the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. So this is if he is wrong. This is if he is in the wrong. So he detests her. He's lied. He's brought shame upon her. This is what shall happen to him. He shall be punished. Corporal punishment. He's likely going to get a beating. And we'll talk about corporal punishment, uh, I think, in 20, 
25, 23, 22, yeah, 25, hopefully before the end of the year. Uh, but in 25, we will talk about corporal punishment there. I know you might think this barbaric, it's just treating humans as, you know, less than human. We're going to talk about perhaps how dignifying it can actually be in comparison to what we see today with our prison system. So we'll get there eventually. But in any case, verse 18, uh, verse 18. So he's going to be punished. He receives only the amount of whipping that he deserves. Not any more, not any less. As Deuteronomy 25 shall say. Um, but uh, uh, so he shall be punished. He shall be fined. Verse 19. They shall find him 100 shekels of silver. Perhaps 50, 50 was the bride price. So he's got to make restitution. He's got to pay double that. Uh, so 100 and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a name on a virgin of Israel. And then lastly, they're going to get married and no, no possibility of divorce. She shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all of his days. All this was meant to be a deterrent against those who would bring false charges against someone weaker than them. This was to protect the weaker women here, uh, the, the weak, weaker ladies in this situation. Provides protection and security for the weaker partner. She's not going to be left destitute. Love is a verb anyway, right? So just deal with it. Just love her. Just care for her. Just don't test her. Throw in love with her. Mr. Detester in verse 13. But there could be the situation Maybe he's right. Maybe she did engage in uncleanness, verse 20. But if the thing is true and evidence of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. So again, shame comes upon him as well, comes upon the family. Again, uh, they're connected more, more uh, intimately, especially in the Old Covenant setting. And the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now we're going to see further situations where people are going to be stoned for violating the seventh commandment. You might think that's a little harsh and maybe, but we also must recognize that the marriage bed preserves the most important relationship in society. And that is a marriage between a husband and a wife. Families are the bedrock of society. Families are the way in which flourishing societies grow. When families are broken up, I know there's sin. I know there's divorce. I know that there's forgiveness for that. But I'm just saying in a general sense, in a natural law sense, as God reveals these things in the light of nature and in the world around us. Even statistically speaking, children do better with a mother and a father who are married, ironically enough. Not ironically, but they do better. A lot of people say, I just needs love. They just need to be, you know, two people. Mother and a father. Read Them Before Us, an interesting book that draws out some of those statistics. But mother and a father. So that's why it might seem harsh, but it is very important. And also it's sitting against God most high and bringing evil into the people among the people but you shall preserve or put away the evil from among you which is repeated throughout deuteronomy so she shall be killed she shall be uh she shall be um uh uh, uh, uh put to death for playing the harlot but then verse 22 they don't discriminate in israel 
if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, so he's perhaps he's married, she's married, then both of them shall die. They engage in adultery. That man that lay with the woman and the woman, they shall both die. There's consent in that. Uh, they shall both be killed for their offense. So no discrimination in Israel. You shall put away the evil from among Israel. And then verses, so that's uh, with the accusation of adultery. If it's wrong, if it's right, if man does adultery, that's what, how it's supposed to be taken care of. Riveting stuff. And then verses 23 through 30, we see rape and incest. So case one, verses 23 and 24. Case of seducing a betrothed woman. So again, there's consent here. Now, betrothal is like, is like engagement on steroids. It's much more binding than engagement. Uh, in our modern con conception of engagement, once you're betrothed, you're pretty much married. Uh, so if a young woman, verse 23, who is a virgin, is betrothed to a husband and a man, different man, finds her within the city, so we're going to distinguish between in the city and outside the city and between consent and non-consent uh, lies and lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. They both did it. They both violated the seventh commandment and the young woman, because she did not cry out in the city. If it was rape, she could have cried out and people could have heard her. People would have come to her aid, come to her help. But in this case, she does not do that. And the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife or had his way with her, is the language that is there. Afflicted her is that word that is used there. And so you shall put away the evil that is from among you. So that continued purpose, purge the evil that is from among you. So seducing a betrothed woman. The second case, verses 25 and through 27, is the case of raping a betrothed woman. No consent involved. Verse 25. If a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, so there's nobody there, she can scream and nobody hears. Then the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There, uh, there is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, for there was none to save her. No one to help, no one to engage, no one to stop the perpetrator from violating this woman. And so he is deserving of death. She is not. And notice it is likened to uh, murder. As when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. Taking someone's life taking someone's virginity, violating someone in this way. I do think, not that I make laws or legislate, I do think rape should be uh, capitally punished. That would stop people, stop people from engaging in such a wicked and heinous act. Certainly death, certainly uh, murder, certainly should be uh, punished by way of capital punishment. Remember, punishment fits the crime, due process involved, but I do think rape should be part of that as well. Uh, which is, you know, what they say there. For just, just when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. But notice something there too at the end. There was no one to save her. For all you pacifists out there that think we shouldn't engage in any sort of 
aggression, there was no one to save her. What's the implication, dear brethren? If you're walking on by and you hear someone yelling, you can't look away. The one who is being uh, violated and one who is being treated improperly by an aggressor, he must be stopped. You cannot walk by and go, turn the other cheek. Just turn the other cheek. Because turn the other cheek isn't an outright prohibition against self-defense. Because in self-defense, you're protecting life, whether it is your own or somebody else's. There was no one there to save her. So if you're, you know, uh, God forbid, something happens to a, a wife or a child or anything like that, you cannot say, turn the other cheek. Or you cannot say, just turn the other cheek. Men need to be men. Men need to stand up. Men need to not be afraid in those scenarios. Men are too flabby. Men are too limpy. Men are too not men these days. Even men, perhaps, who don't cross-dress, men who perhaps don't wear women's clothing, sometimes don't act like men at all. Where is courage? Where is, the, where is fight? Where is love for God in this land? Where are those things in God's church? Now, most people are afraid. That's our typical response to when things, you know, when there's pressure from without. But brethren, we need God to give us strength. God to give us strength, certainly as families, to lead our families well spiritually, but also to protect our families physically as well. Where have all the men gone? Hopefully we can be men. God help. Please help us to be such men. In any case, there's no one to save her. Verse 28. If a man finds a young woman, scenario three. This is seducing a single woman. Again, there's still consent here. I know the NIV has rape. It's not, it's a different word from verse 25. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out. Notice they are found out. That is, there's consent involved there. They both do it. And so this woman is not betrothed to somebody else. This woman is not uh, engaged to somebody else, not belonging to someone else. Here's what shall happen. To make sure she's protected. Verse 29, the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he humbled her he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. He shall care for her. He shall protect her. He shall make sure that she has all that she needs uh, because uh, they were uh, in this situation. So again, I know these laws are unsavory. I know these laws sometimes are hard to understand, but the point is God punishes the guilty and protects the innocent to make sure, even in this scenario, even though she engages in it as well, God still makes sure that she is not left with nothing. So, one final case, verse 30. Case of incest. Really good stuff on a Wednesday night. You know, again, you know, I know it's hard for us to understand. I know I make those comments. It is God's word. We have to appreciate that God is protecting the innocent in these scenarios. He, he really is. And we ought to understand and recognize that this world is a sinful, fallen, messy, awful place. We long for heaven. We long for home. We long when there's 
you know, time when there's no shootings that happen. We long for a time when there's no murder that happened. We long for a time there's no rape that happens. We long for such times. But we live in a time when there is much sin. And there was sinfulness in Israel. And there's sinfulness in our era. And even incest occurs. Verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. Father's wife here refers to not his own mother. This is a poly polygamous relationship or a bigamous relationship. So the son takes perhaps the stepmom is the language here um, in this way. Certainly you see that with Reuben. Remember he took Bilhah, right? He, and that was probably a power play. He probably saw that Rachel, you know, Rachel was the beloved one and Bilhah was her maid. I think it's Bilhah. I know it's Bilhah and Zilpah. I can't remember which one is the one. For, I could get those mixed up. But in any case, he took one of that or one of them as a way to try and further his place as the firstborn. He didn't have to do that. He was the firstborn. Um, so that's something that one should not do. You shall not take his father's wife. Um, yeah, it's uh, incest is possible both by blood and by law, which is what this says. Our confession talks about consanguinity. That's a big word that just means by blood but also affinity, which means by law. Incest can happen by consanguinity and happen by affinity, happen by blood and happen by law. In this case, it's happening by law. The man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. And perhaps what that means there, uncover his father's nakedness, um, shaming your father in his most in intimate life. And it's more intense if it's coming from one's own son. I know there's that situation with Noah in Genesis 9, which is really odd with Ham. Uh, perhaps there's some voyeurism going on there in that situation, but they uncovered their father's nakedness when he should have covered it up, or he saw his father's nakedness when he should have covered it up. So that's probably what that means there, uncovered his father's bed, that is, violated his father in his father's most intimate life by taking his father's wife. Boy, the application hopefully is in a lot of ways pretty clear. Don't engage in incest, don't rape, don't commit adultery, and most importantly, preserve the marriage bed, as it is important for the family unit and society. It's an application for society, as I said, preserving the marriage bed, preserving the family unit is important for you know, society, but it's important for the church as well. I mean, the church is plagued with sexual sins in history, isn't it? Hasn't it been? I mean, 1 Corinthians 5, and perhaps as you hear the language of father's wife and you hear the language of putting the evil away among you, you think of 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth to deal with various issues. And what's interesting is Paul still calls them brethren in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if I was looking for a church, I don't know that I would pick Corinth as the church to go to. I mean, with everything that's going on there. But God writes to them with through Paul. Paul writes to them. God through Paul writes to them and still calls them brethren and corrects their wrongs and is patient with them. And even in that church discipline aspect, yeah, the father, the man who had his father's wife must be dealt with. And in the language I, in there is unrepentant sin. He's perpetual, engaging in scandalous sins. Sexual sins still plague God's people. It happens. Lustful intent still plagues God's people. How can any of us say we've never had an impure thought? Can anybody ever actually say that? 
They've never looked on another person with lustful intent. We can all say such things. And thankfully, God forgives us. But the language in 1 Corinthians 5 is of that gross, scandalous nature. Sin that one is not dealing with. And what's very special? You know, like, how is that special? In 2 Corinthians, when it talks about the brother being restored, it's probably that brother. You see, discipline has its purpose. It is A, the purity of the church, and then B, restoration. And that's what it did for the man who had his father's wife. There was forgiveness, there was mercy, there was uh, kindness and goodness uh, shown to him for what he had done. But it still happens. And again, the one place to enjoy sexual intimacy is the marriage bed. It's just important to preserve chastity in all facets of life. Not saying you can you have to dress in a you know plastic box or a you know cardboard box, but dress modestly. I'm not going to tell you specifically what that is, but just please dress modestly in this world. Because the seventh commandment, again, isn't just don't commit adultery, it's also preserve the chastity in a positive sense in our mind, in our words, in our behavior, in our thoughts, and preserve others as well. And one thing I am thankful. I guess at this point in society is people still hate rape and people still hate incest that that's still, you know, hopefully that sticks, but based on the left's logic, it wouldn't be hard for a rapist or those engaging in affinity to argue that it just makes them happy. Right. I mean, that that's the whole argument that anybody ever gives about LGBTQ. You can just take the LGBTQ and apply it to rape incest, pedophilia, you can apply it to all those things. You can apply it to those situations. So right, uh, thankfully, again, rape and incest still, and even like incest, there, like, there's more scenarios arising that you read on the news about certain things. At least I read certain news. You know, I, you know, Breitbart is where I go, and there's things that pop up all the time, but it's just sad. But in any case, thankfully, it's still hated. But sexual immorality is rampant in our modern context, and in the church. But again, due process still needs to be involved. Protection for all members in society and protection for people of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's a lot. I know I kind of feel a little bit gross going through all that, but it is God's word and we have to do it. But I'll just conclude with this. Those who engage in rape, Incest, adultery, fornication, violation of the marriage bed, not preserving life, mingling with things they shouldn't, not putting a parapet on one's house, cross-dressing, and not caring for your neighbor's possessions. There is forgiveness for those sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't there? See, God is merciful and good to forgive all sorts of dark sins that people commit that we commit in mind, that we commit in word, and that we commit in deed. Think of David's prayer in Psalm 51. I mean, he did all of these things, didn't he? Murder, bloodshed, I mean, adultery. I mean, it's all there with, with King David. And what does he pray in Psalm 51, 14 specifically? Deliver me, O God, from the guilt of bloodshed. O oh God of my salvation, that I, with my tongue, 
they sing aloud of your righteousness. God forgives, God is merciful, and God is kind. And Jesus emphasizes this in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. And perhaps there is some allusion back, at least conceptually, to Deuteronomy 22. The woman who did commit adultery, and the Pharisees are trying to get him. They're trying to, you know, try and nail him down, see what he would say with that. Jesus starts writing in the sand, doesn't he? He starts writing, perhaps he's writing the law, and he says, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And as he's writing, they all go away. What does he say to her? Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. See, only a God who is love can forgive these sins. The world does not forgive these things. But God, who is merciful and good, gives forgiveness. And people can find forgiveness in Christ who forgives. Well, let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful for your law and for what it says. We confess, O oh God, that we are wicked in so many ways. Please forgive us for our impure thoughts and impure desires. Please forgive us for not preserving the chastity of our neighbor. Please, O oh God, forgive us for not considering the possessions of our neighbor and carefully uh, preserving them. Please forgive us, O oh God, for being greedy uh, with food, being gluttonous with food. Please, oh God, forgive us for being negligent in many ways. And uh, we pray, oh God, that we would appreciate what you're doing in these texts, even if it is hard to read. We know, oh God, that you are a God of justice, and we pray that there would be justice and equity in the land. Uh, we know that sexual morality is rampant, that the family is being attacked. And we pray, oh God, that you would strengthen the families of our church families of your people, that the, the family would be important again, especially when it comes to raising children. Please forgive those who come from broken families. Please forgive those who have been part of the problem in breaking families. Thank you, God, there's mercy and forgiveness in you. And thank you, there's forgiveness for uh, engaging in sexual morality. And thank you, God, that you're good to forgive. So please be with us. Give us strength for the day. Help us to be reminded of you who is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse this fallen righteousness. And thank you that we can do so because you are pure, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And thank you that we can uh, be assured of this because you sent forth your son in this world to be a sacrifice for us. So be with us now as we go into the world in the name of Christ. Amen.